Okay, let's pray, and then we'll dismiss the kids for Sunday school, those that go. Uh, Father, we do come before you uh, with heavy hearts, Lord, as we look around our world and we see the, the, the fallenness of, of humanity and to see the, the, how sin manifests itself in loss of life and um, the wounds that, that last a long time. Uh, time. Time has a hard time. It doesn't heal these wounds of these lost lives that were taken too short. Father, we do pray for the, the family and friends and the loved ones who, who li- whose lives uh, continue on and on uh, for years and decades and decades, Lord, with uh, the scar of losing a loved one uh, untimely. And so, Father, we, we look to you uh, to bless these individuals in a special way uh, this weekend as our nation pauses to commemorate these lost lives. We pray for um, our leaders around the world, our leaders here in the States and around the world, Lord, as um, they handle various conflicts. Um, we pray, Father, that you would uh, ultimately bring peace. We know that your scriptures promise that. We pray that you would help our leaders and the leaders around the world to just to, to create a pause in, in the violence, Lord, that we that ultimately, Lord, that lives would be uh, turn towards Jesus and um, that transformation would happen for we know that ultimately that's the only answer to these problems. It won't happen through politics, through legislation, but through a a transformed heart. Uh, Father, we do uh, now as the news is all over about Ukraine and the invasion there, we do pray for that situation that it would come to an end. We pray for these refugees that they would be able to uh, find their way back home and that they would be able to, to, to lead peaceful lives. Father, we do uh, thank you for uh, the freedoms that we have uh, in this nation, that we can gather here to worship you, to study your word, without fear of, of any attack or anybody coming and telling us that we can't do this. And so, Father, we pray that uh, we would not take this time together lightly. Um, Father, as we turn our attention to the scriptures today, that you would... Uh, speak to us, Lord, uh, through your word uh, from Genesis chapter 15, this super significant chapter in the Bible, and it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. Okay, the kids can go to Sunday school. The ones that go to Sunday school, they're clearly chomping at the bit to get out of here. Uh, no, I didn't see any adults running out, so that's good. Um, okay, so we're in Genesis chapter 15. This is a super significant chapter in, in the Bible. Genesis 15, I, I thought I would cover the whole chapter, but in just preparing, I'm only doing the first six verses uh, today, and we'll pick up the rest later. So Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, this is how it reads. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, no one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he 
took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he, that's Abram, believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. And Father, we do thank you for this just wonderful passage of faith. We pray, Father, that through this time, you would help us to grow closer to you, that our faith, our faith would be strengthened, and that we would trust you through our life's circumstances and difficulties, however great they feel to us. We know that you are greater and that you are able to work in and through them and to do what you desire to be done through them. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to surrender our lives to you, uh, that we would walk by faith in a way that's pleasing to you. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. Um, so I don't know if you've reached the, uh, like a place in your life of, of brokenness and conviction where like the weight of your sin and sorrow um, weighs really heavily on you. Um, it, it really is sort of the best place that you can find yourselves uh, because this is the starting point where we need to be with God. Um, I, I think I had a few points in my life where this has happened. Um, it, it, the, the window of like three years of where I became a Christian, somewhere between like 18 and 22, somewhere in that window, I became a Christian. I had a bunch of incidences that, that occurred that, that I did that God would use to begin to like break me and convict me of my sin and really have me like grapple with like what is the point of life and where am I going. Um, in 2003, I'd been a believer. And as we like, you know, it's Memorial Day weekend after being a believer, still grappling with issues of life and death and faith, because I don't, I'm not of the mindset that you like become a Christian and all of the pieces just sort of fall in place and like you just got it all figured out. Um, there's this journey of faith. And so when I, in 2003, um, when I got the call that my best friend Tom Retzer was killed in Afghanistan, like it was another a point of like, my, like God just like breaking me and, and me having to grapple with like, is this stuff that I read about in the Bible, is this true or is this not true? And how do, I, how do I reconcile the things that I see in the world with what I see in my life? And am I going to choose to walk by faith? Um, it, it's, it's difficult. It's a, it's, a, it's a place where I think God does the most amount of work in our lives is when we're most desperate for him. In the great book, Pilgrim's Progress, there's a, there's a quote or a line in there where Pilgrim, as he's making his journey to the cross, he writes, or they write, uh, this miry slough is a place that can't be repaired. It's a low-lying place where the scum and filth that come with the conviction of sin drain and collect as the traveling sinner becomes aware of his lost condition. It is the fears, doubts, and discouraging apprehensions about oneself that arise in his soul. And he's talking about this just total and complete brokenness that you recognize that there is nothing that can be done on your own right to fix it. In Acts chapter 2, as, as uh, the Spirit came and Peter began to preach to these, these pocket of believers and they come to the realization that they had just killed God, at the very end of it in verse 37, there's this line that says, 
Now, when they had heard this, Peter's explanation about what had happened and what they had done, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And so they kind of reached this, this dead end. They reached the end. They recognized what had happened. And they're grappling with the, how do we move forward? This seems like this is not repairable. We have got, if we have killed God, we've gone too far for there to be peace with God. And so as we come to Genesis chapter 15, this, this, you know, there's so many parts of the Bible that I think, oh, this is the, one of the most significant places in the Bible. But chapter 15, at least for today, because it's the one I'm preaching on today, is like the most significant passage that I'm going to be preaching on today. And as I've been thinking about it, it's, this is sort of like a, a foundational piece of the puzzle for how God interacts with humanity. Uh, how, what does he want us to do? And, and I recognize that I'm going to fall short in trying to explain this passage. Uh, this week, I listened to a pastor's conference that I was supposed to go to the week before um, Romania. I canceled it because I just didn't feel like I was supposed to go. I think God was like preparing me to, for the trip to Romania. Um, but I, I watched all the videos at, in hindsight. And Alistair Begg, he made the comments during a Q&A session about preaching and and he said, the reality is, is none of us are competent preachers. Like, none of us have the capacity to preach. There was only one preacher, and that's Jesus. And he's the only one who could approach the text with confidence and knowing what he was supposed to do. The rest of us, we're just faking our way through this. And, and the, you know, and, and so I come to this passage, and I realize my inadequacies and my inability to convey the significance of this. But this passage is sort of this, this foundational piece to the New Testament that God would use in the life of Abraham explaining to us how do we answer this question? If we want to get right with God, what do we have to do? And so we begin the story, the very first phrase here after these things. There's a shift in the story of Abraham. Two weeks ago when John preached uh, Genesis chapter 14, I listened to the message. Man, you're courageous trying to read all those names. I would have just said, and these guys and this guy, king number one, king number two, king number three. There's five kings Abraham goes to war. He defeats these five kings. Just because he won the battle doesn't mean that he's not going to be fearful of, a, of, a, of an attack. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, do not fear. And so Abraham is afraid or Abram is afraid. He's attacked these five kings. He's come out victorious. Now what's he going to do? They're probably regrouping, planning another attack. There's plenty that he could be concerned about. And God appears to him and says, here I am. Don't be afraid. In this passage today, there's a number of phrases that appear for the first time that we see repeated throughout the Bible over and over again. Do not fear happens throughout the Bible. And it's not like the bumper sticker that you see or the t-shirt that they sell like the surfers or skaters, or, you know, the no fear logo brand. This isn't like, hey, no fear because you're stronger. It's don't fear. If I am with you and you're with me, I will protect you. And so you can uh, shelf your fear and place it into trust and I will get you through whatever circumstance you're going through. He says, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you and your reward will be very great. And so God, again, brings up the Abrahamic covenant that he had referenced back in Genesis 12, that Abram would be a great 
a nation, a great people. They would have all this land, and all of these things would happen. And so today, or really today and next week, or, or two weeks from now, we'll get to the point when this actual covenant is ratified, where God uh, seals the deal, so to speak, where he signs on the, the dotted line, the, the, the papers are notarized, and it's in effect that God is going to deliver this promise. And so here Abraham finds himself. God brings up the promise again. He, he's afraid. God says, don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. You're safe in my, under my wings. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you in a great way. Your reward is going to be great. And so now Abraham responds. And he says in verse 2, Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have uh, given no offspring to me, one born in my, one, excuse me, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. The, NI, the NS, NA, NASB sometimes reads a little broken to me. And if my brain is thinking I have too many files open, then it's like, this, what is it saying? You're like, I've been studying all week. And so what he's saying to God, he's saying, like, what, what can you give me? I don't care about riches and wealth. Like, he had, he had everything he could possibly need. He was a wealthy man. As, as we got out of the story, when they went down to Egypt, he came back. He was blessed financially. He had everything he could possibly have. And he looks at God. He says, what, what, like, what are you going to give me? Not that he's asking for anything. He's like, I don't need any stuff. But I'm concerned about this promise that you had given you had given me this promise that through me this nation would be born, but I have no child. You haven't given me a child. And so he's concerned about this promise that God had given to him. And now God says he's going to bless him. And Abram's kind of questioning, like, how is this promise going to be delivered? In order for this promise to happen, it requires a child. I have no child. We'll get into his age in a little bit. And I just Love that as Abram begins to engage with God, he's open with God about his struggle, his fears, his concerns. And he's, he seems to be concerned with like, God had said this, he can't see all the pieces. And it's like he's yearning to believe. Like he really wants to believe, but there's like this doubt in his mind because the math doesn't add up. And so then in verse four, we read, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, So now God appears. The word of the Lord came to him throughout the Old Testament. We see all different ways that God uh, appears to these Old Testament saints. So we don't know, like, the text just simply doesn't say how he appeared. We just know that the word of the Lord appeared to him and what God said to him. This man, speaking of Eliezer, the, the, the servant that was born in his house, Abram saying, listen, like, I have no children. If I and my wife die today, the person that's going to inherit all of my stuff is going to be this guy who is a servant who was born here. He's the one that is entitled to the stuff, and he's not, he's not an heir, so he doesn't qualify for this promise that you've, you've promised. And so God says, this guy's not going to be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And so God, again, says, there's a promise. You will have a biological child, And this child will be the key to all of the promises. And so in verse 5, he took him outside and he said, 
Now look toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to count them. I don't think you're, I don't think you can count them. Like I think that scientists today with all of their telescopes and stuff, I think they take rough estimates of what they think, but there's, there's, this is impossible. And so Abram goes outside. God gives him this little object lesson. He says, look at the stars. If you can count them, count them. This is how great your descendants will be. So God speaks. Abram is faced with this dilemma between trusting what God said and his present reality. So we know his present reality is that back in chapter 12, back then, we know that he was 75 years old. We know in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 16, we know that he's 86 there. And then skipping ahead, by the time the promise is fulfilled, they're going to be closer to 100. And we also know that his wife is barren. So you have old age on his part. I'm not going to comment on the woman. That's just never safe to do. But we know that she's enabled to have children. And so here's Abram in his reality. I'm like an old man, and my wife and I, like wherever the problem lies, we can't have children. And so then at this point, I'm confronted in my own life with like, how do I handle my own doubts? There's not a day that goes by that we're not confronted with some sort of reality that seems to contradict what God says And do we respond by faith and trusting him, or do we allow worry and fear and sort of our own little game plan to to be established so that we can get through our fears? If I'm honest, route number two is the one that I'm I'm way more well-versed at following. And so how would Abram speak, or how would he respond to God saying him this? this? This old guy, wife can't have children, God says you're going to have a child and all of these promises are going to come to bear. And so in verse 6, what we read, this, this is, of this passage, this is probably, at least for today, I can guarantee you, it's the most significant passage in the whole of the Bible. We're told, then he, that's Abram, believed in the Lord. And he, that's God, reckoned or credited or imputed his account, he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So here's Abram, not a perfect man. This, this you know, as to quote from Alistair Begg, since he's in my, the best of men are men at best. So here's Abram on a good day. He's still a fallen man. He hears God. He responds by faith. And we're told because of his belief that God says, your spiritual account before me, I count you as a righteous man. This is huge. And so while I had intended to like fly through the rest of the chapter, I have to pause here because I I would be uh, like dereliction of duty if I was to fail not to like say the New Testament kind of comments on this verse in significant ways. And, and so now i got to flip the page because in my notes, I know that I, the next page is going to say, I, I don't know what to do at this point. Like, I don't want to bore you with reading a whole bunch of stuff, but I also feel like I have to read a whole bunch of stuff to you guys. 
So if you'll turn your Bibles over to Romans chapter 4, we, we have to deal with Romans chapter 4. We have to deal with Galatians chapter 3. Because these, like Romans and Galatians are sort of like cousins in the New Testament. They're, um, the Apostle Paul, this, unlike the other apostles who were untrained, unskilled men, they had spent time with Jesus. God raises up Saul, the Apostle Paul, to be the man that would reach the Gentiles. And the way that he would use Paul to reach the Gentiles is he would take the most accredited Jewish man who had all of the credentials, all of the degrees, everything that you could possibly need to be the voice to say, these Gentiles have been grafted in and in Christ we are one. There's no longer Jew and Greek. And then he pens first Galatians, probably one of the oldest uh, or the, the, the oldest uh, epistles. And so he writes Galatians as sort of this defense of the gospel, the defense of, of what is the gospel? How do we get right with God? And then he would pen Romans, this, this letter of the New Testament that they say, you know, a toddler can read and understand and a theologian can drown in. This, this is the, I think it's been described as the Magna Carta of, of Christianity. It, it defines everything that you need to know. In the fourth chapter, the issue that he's dealing with, and so much of Romans of what's happening is, is the gospel had made it to Rome. Paul hadn't been there. The gospel exploded. The Jewish church was, was off the charts. Then Nero, a Nero came up and started blaming the Jews of, of terrible things. And so he expelled the Jews from Rome. And while the Jews were expelled from Rome, the gospel continued to grow and to expand, but the church became a Gentile church. And then that Nero went away and the Jews were allowed to come back. And so now in Rome, you have this church. You have Gentile believers who think that they kind of had replaced Israel. And then you have the Jewish believers returning and say, no, we're Israel. And there's like this squabble going on between the church. All of Romans is, is dealing with these two groups. And if you miss, like, you can't miss this. You have to see this. And so Paul, who hasn't met this church, he longs to see them. He wants to go there. He wants to share the gospel with them. He's heard all kinds of things about them. They are in a, a critical place for the gospel. This, this, this was the, the capital of the world. And so Paul writes this letter, the first three chapters of Romans. You can summarize in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. We all have sinned. We all miss the mark. None of us on our own merit can stand before God. The Gentile would like that. The Jew would say, ah, uh, we have our traditions. I already have the song Tradition stuck in my head because before with the worship team, we started talking about the fiddler on the roof. And so now I have the fiddler on the roof playing through my mind as I'm preaching. Well, welcome behind the scenes. <laughs> and the Jews would be saying, like, well, we do all of this stuff. Like, we, we do all this stuff. We have circumcision. Circumcision is super important. Mosaic law is super important. You read a lot of the Old Testament from, from when they came out of Egypt as slaves and into the promised land, that whole period of like Deuteronomy, these, the stage 
God's dealing with humanity during this time was, if you want to be blessed, do this. If you don't want to be blessed, don't do this. And so the law got sort of misunderstood by the Jews. It was sort of like a, they, they began to understand it like a reward system, that if we do this, then God owes us this. And it wasn't a faith-based transaction. That's what they thought. I'm not saying that's what it is. That's what they thought it was supposed to be. And so now Paul in Romans chapter 4, after he'd made his case that the Jew, the Gentile, everybody, all of humanity, from Adam to present day, everybody's missed the mark, everybody's a sinner, everybody's condemned before God. That should be pretty easy for us to understand. None of us in our own right is good. Then he comes to chapter 4, and he wants to lay this foundation. So where does Paul go? Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And he makes this huge case. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'll read part of it and just kind of skim out the parts of it. But Romans chapter 4, verse 1. He writes, what shall we say? What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? So Abram's like he is the forefather. As we work our way through Genesis, the first 11 chapters are sort of about sort of the creation of, of humanity, the earth, the heaven, the moons, the star, everything. Then we get to chapter 12 through the end of, of Genesis, and it covers four lives. Je- Abram is the first of the forefathers. And so this is like the granddaddy of the Jews. This is the guy they went to. And so he says he brings up Abraham. And the reason he brings up Abraham is because in Genesis chapter 17, we'll see another covenant is made with Abraham that's significant. The covenant of circumcision, which was super important during the church age. Like as, This is the early church. They're grappling. What do we do with these Gentiles? We, we, we don't do spot inspections on guys today, so I don't know how exactly they knew all of this. But if you were uncircumcised, the world knew about it. And if you were circumcised, the world knew about it. And the Jews during the early church said, if you want to be right with God and be grafted in, that's fine. You're welcome. But the first thing you got to do is to be circumcised. And so Paul is now dealing with this issue of a work to get right with God. And so he goes to Abram because circumcision was founded upon with Abram. And so he says, well, what shall we say? Like, what is he found according to the flesh? Verse two, for if Abram or Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So he begins to make the case like, hey, if Abram got right with God and he did all this stuff and he had works and he was able to work himself into being right with God, then yes, certainly Abraham could boast to other men, but he can't boast before God. Verse three, for what does the scripture say? Quoting from Genesis 15, verse six, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wage is not credited to him as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who, in him who justifies, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So he goes to say, like, if you're going to work in, the, in your day-to-day life, when you go to your job and you put in the time that you put in, your 40 hours for the week, when your boss pays you, you don't go, oh, that was so gracious of you. Thank you so much for giving me my paycheck. 
You were entitled to it. You like signed onto a contract. I do this, you do this, this is how it works. And so he's saying if you say you're going to do all this work and then God owes you, then there's, there's nothing there. But to the individual who comes to God by faith, that individual who receives the gift, uh, it's, it's a, a humbling thing to receive the mercy of God. And if you are a Christian, you have received the mercy of God, you've received his graciousness, and it's a whole nother experience. So he makes his cases by faith. Going from verse 16 down to 17, if you're to study this on your own, he goes to David in righteousness, and he begins to look at this work of circumcision, this, this process of circumcision. And, and if the Jews were standing before God based on Abraham's covenant of circumcision, he kind of f- follows this, this thought. And if you were to highlight words in verses uh, 6 through 8 to 17, you should highlight words like circumcision, uncircumcision. You should highlight the, the contrast of faith. Um, these two things sort of interact sort of through the life of Abraham. And then he comes to verse 18. And he says, In hope against hope, he, that's Abram, believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, plural, not just Israel, nations with the S there. And if you go back to Genesis, you'll find that plural S also. And as soon as I find my spot here, okay, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb doesn't comment on her age. Um, Verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. He's saying, if God said it, regardless of what I see around me, God can deliver. And so I'm going to put my faith in God's ability to deliver that which he says before my own doubt and my own math of looking around and saying, this isn't possible. How can this possibly be? He goes on in verse 22. Therefore, it, his faith, was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So Paul takes this story of Abraham where we're today, and when he looks at Christians or people grappling or surveying Christianity, he says the most important thing that you need to know is that God's dealing with us is based on faith, not on works. And if you find yourself in that spot where you're broken, you feel the weight of your sin, you, you can't possibly imagine a way out. And the, when you come to terms with your sin, it's not about measuring with other people. You re- come to the place where you recognize how holy God is and how vile you are. And it's just not fair that God would forgive me. It's not fair. He shouldn't. What I deserve is punishment. I deserve wrath. I deserve separation from him. But God in his love and his goodness says, I'm going to make a way 
so that you can have fellowship with me. It's unthinkable. And so Paul says when he looks at the story of Abram, he says this story was for us so that we would understand if you want to get right with God, God deals with us based on faith, on his work, what Jesus does, not on our own works, because our own works will never make the mark. Then we hop over to Galatians. Oh, man, I'm, I know I'm out of time. We're getting close. We're like... So we come to Genesis chapter 3. This, this book that was happening as they're grappling over these things uh, in Acts chapter 15, the, the Jerusalem council, the same issues. What do we do with these Gentile believers who are not circumcised? How do we graft them into the church? What do they need to do? I think the Jews would say, if they want to be right, I, let me take that back. I need to be careful here with, with uh, anti-Semitism. The Jews that were holding to the law, because the Jews that were arguing for the Gentiles not to be circumcised were also Jews, so it's all Jews. So there was a group, a sect of the Jews who said, if they want to be grafted into this work that Jesus is doing to the Messiah, they must be circumcised. They have to do this work. And then there was the other half of the Jews that said, no, if they want to get right with God, what's required of them is belief in Jesus Christ alone, period. And this church grappled over this. And so it's believed that Galatians was written right before they went to Jerusalem to to hash out all of this stuff. And so Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So he's saying, did you receive the Holy Spirit that's within you, that indwells you by doing good works, that you did something and finally God gave you the Spirit because you passed the test? Or did you receive the Spirit because when you heard the gospel, you believed? And in that moment, we're told that we're sealed with the Spirit. So this is a rhetorical question. He goes on to say in verse 3, are you so foolish having been Begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is another rhetorical question that I think that we who are Christians, and I believe most of us in this room, have responded to the gospel by faith. I struggled with this early in my Christian life. I came to Christ by faith, but then I looked around me and I saw all of the other Christians who didn't have tattoos and didn't have a checkered pass, and I thought, if I, ah, I, need, to, I need to do stuff so that I can gain my ranking amongst Christianity. So if I need to do all of this stuff, and I'm going to make up for lost time from when I was younger, and I did all these things that were terrible sins, and that they're like scarlet letters on my conscience and my memory. And this is what Paul says, did you come to faith in Christ only then to shift back to works to try to sort of close the gap? And he's saying, don't do that. Verse uh, verse, where are we at? Yeah, verse 5. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and the works, miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Obviously by faith. Verse 6, he goes to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Even so, Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And now suddenly in the New Testament, we're told back to Genesis chapter 15, this great Abrahamic covenant, this promise that was made, we're told some, 
I don't even know how many. We know we're like 2,000 years ahead of Christ, but this is maybe like uh, five, 7,000, 5,000 years ago. Like I, don't, I have to look at my notes. That suddenly because of his action and this promise was given that we now become Abraham's children? It's mind-boggling. Verse 8, the scripture, verse, uh, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abram. There's so much to wonder about this. Did Abram know? Like according to this, it seems like God revealed to Abraham that this Messiah would come and he would do all of these things that would deliver the people. Gentiles by faith preach the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abram, the believer. Verse 10, for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God, it is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith, quoting from Habakkuk 2.4, I believe. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abram, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abram and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one. And your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For the inheritance is based on law. It is For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abram by means of a promise. Why, why the law then? It was added because of the transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on a law. Okay, if you're sleeping, wake up, because this is going to be on the test, this part. I know it was a lot, so this is a good part to wake up. This is like the important part. Verse 22, we're in Galatians, if you would nod it off. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 22. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. It's saying that if you want to live by the law, if you want to do the works, if you think you're going to justify yourself before God for being good, if you're going to go down that road, you better nail it perfectly. And the law was given to condemn you, not to save you. Because none of us can do it. If you fail on one point, you fail on the whole thing. 
And he's saying, Scripture, the law was given to shut you up before God, to humble you, James said. You have nothing that you can say before God to say, I'm a good person, I've done, fill in the blank. No, none of us. So that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law was given to frustrate you. The law was given, the Ten Commandments, the 613 commandments of the Old Testament, that was given solely to make you discouraged because you're incompetent. You're a sinful being that always will miss the mark. You will look at something and your mind will go the wrong direction because your heart is utterly wicked. And the Bible says the law was given to frustrate you, not to make you feel good about yourself. And if you reach the point at the end, wherever that is, whether you're six years old or you're 90 years old, that you realize I am a terrible sinner before God. What do I do now? And the question is flawed because there's nothing you can do. You can't. Doing will only lead to more frustration. Verse 24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, to lead us to Jesus, the one who did what we can't do. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And there's a total difference between surrendering your life and giving your life, giving everything to him out of response of what he did for you than there is giving your whole life trying to earn your way into heaven. They're totally different. They might look the same on the outside, but on the inside, they're fundamentally different. Verse 26, or verse 25, I think. Uh, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. We're, like, we're all Gentiles. None of us were ordered to obey the Mosaic law that was given to the Jewish people. Like, we have, like, the New Testament. I'm not saying the Old Testament's not important. Like, the Old Testament, is, we're studying Genesis, so obviously I think the Old Testament is important. But we were never called to obey the Ten Commandments. We, the Ten Commandments are repeated in large part in the New Testament, and we're to obey those. The, 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 the jurisdiction has changed, and a lot of laws overlap. But we're called to follow Christ by faith. And as we follow him, he will change us from within. Verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have, enclosed, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's descendants, heirs according to the promise. And so he goes this whole way. And he's saying, like Father Abraham, even to you Gentiles, if you've placed your faith in Christ, Abraham is your father. We believe we become his children. We are a part of the promise. As Abraham looked out on the stars, one of those stars, if you're in Christ, was you. One of those stars was me. All of those stars represent future people that would come and approach God through faith and not works. And so what do we do? Like, what do we do with this? Like, so often we ask one another, like, hey, how do you, like, what do you do to get right with God? What is it that God did? And, and we, like, miss the mark. Like, why do people go to hell? We say, oh, because of their sin. Well, what did Jesus say? Jesus said in John 16, 8 through 9, 
And he, when he comes, will convict the world, speaking of the Holy Spirit, will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin. Because why? Because of their sin? No. Because they do not believe in me. In me, in Jesus, God. The triunity of God manifests itself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we go back to Genesis chapter 15, what did Abraham say? He, or what did God say about him? He believed in him. And Jesus says, you'll be condemned, separated from God forever if you reject me. It's no longer about your sin. Your sin was paid for on the cross, whether you believe it or not. And at this moment, then what do you do with the one whom died for your sins on the cross? Our default position is rejection. And if you reject Jesus, you're condemned. For those of us who have grappled with life and death and these things, my prayer is that you have come to the place where you understand that Jesus died for you. His death on the cross was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God that was due you. I think of the Pilgrim's Progress quote that I read earlier, and when he writes that, to be in that miry slough, to be in that place where you're so weighed down with your sin. The Pilgrim's Progress is this wonderful book, second to like the Bible and sales and human history, that when Christian comes to the cross and he takes off the backpack, the burden of his sin, and he lays it down at the foot of the cross and he's set free. When you have experienced this freedom, there's nothing in the world second to that. And until you find that freedom, you're not going to find satisfaction in anything, anywhere at all. And so my prayer is that you can reach this place where Jesus becomes your all because he has given all for you. If we find ourselves in this place, know that there's hope. Know that God says, I have an answer for you to get right with me. I have an answer for you to have fellowship with me. I have an answer to fill that void in your heart, which is me that you're lacking. There is a promise. Like Abraham had a promise, we're faced and confronted with this promise of the gospel. The only way to attain this peace is through Jesus. I cut short in Romans chapter 4. The chapters were put there by man, and if you continue one verse in, you'd come to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. And it says, Therefore, because of all of the things I just said about Abraham, having been justified by faith, some have said, just as if I had never sinned, I don't think I like that because you did sin. But before God, positionally, God has taken your sin, nailed it to the cross, And he, if you're in Christ, sees the blood of Christ and you're washed white as snow. Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a terribly difficult thing to understand. I'm going to end right like here. That when a pastor says that, it means nothing. Um, Just as a disclaimer, just so like in case you're visiting, like on my paper, I'm like right there. Yesterday at the men's study, it was like this beautiful discussion. Like we're at the very end. Of, of 2 Timothy, Paul is talking about how his life is being poured out as a drink offering, and, and he's at the end of his race. And Jim back there by the air conditioning, you know, kind of tucked away, he says something that was just profound. Like He said, this is like one of the hardest things to deal with. 
Like, I get cognitively that Jesus, I'm just my words of what he said, just so you know, just, sorry, Jim. Um, like, I get that Jesus died on the cross for me. I get that he forgave me. But man, I can't forgive myself. This is like, this is what we have to grapple with. Like, Jesus died on the cross. And then Doug is a plug for Saturday morning study. It's like, great, Jim looks, Doug looks at Jim and he says, yeah, we've all been there. But when we're in that place, what we're saying to God is that your work on the cross wasn't sufficient enough. And then I have to beat myself up for your lack of fulfilling what needs to be done. Oh. We need to come to the place where we recognize that Jesus' work on the cross is totally and completely sufficient. This isn't something that you like, I don't like, we grapple with with an altar call. This is something like when you're home at night going to bed and you're praying and talking to God and saying, God, help me to like, help me to get this. And maybe you're a Christian, but you're struggling to forgive yourself. Ask God to let you be set free from these lies of your past life and your sin. He has forgiven you. You can move on. We as a church need to embody grace. You have a pastor that's covered in tattoos and has a checkered background, so grace is so important. We need to defend it. And if you haven't experienced it, like, come talk to us, see, like, pray, like, let God show you how good he is. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for this story of Abraham. We thank you for this imperfect man who displayed this beautiful faith in you. He had his own circumstances. He had his own things that he had to grapple with that are different and distinct from our own. Everyone in this room has different things that are weighing on their hearts, different struggles, different fears. But we share the same God that Abraham encountered with. He dealt with you. And so, Father, I pray for each one of us, if we are people in, in this place who are listening, who haven't reached the place of responding to you by faith and trusting that Jesus died for them, I pray that you would help them to take the next steps, whether it's talking with me or talking with a friend or talking with a family member. Father, I pray that you would help them to talk to you so that ultimately they would get right with you. And Father, for those of us who have responded by faith, who are your children, we acknowledge, Lord, that it's so easy for us to default to our flesh and that we try to continue the race by works and not grace. So we pray that you would help us to be people who receive grace, who remain in grace, who walk in grace, who display grace to others. Help us to see every individual that we encounter in our lives through Jesus' lens, that they are one for whom Christ died. And Father, we do thank you for this, this relationship with us. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your just constant forgiveness and cleansing and renewal. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.